I often uh, speak about this practice as one of uh, putting life, putting our experience under the microscope of awareness. And I think it's a it's a helpful image. It's in many ways what the container, the context of retreat that we were speaking about last night is a support for right? a kind of you know, taking our raw experience, separating it out from uh, all of the, the sort of the white noise, as somebody referred to it earlier today, the interference, the, the, all the, the stuff that prevents us from seeing things so clearly. Uh, maybe Gaia House then is the kind of laboratory uh, in which we take the microscope of our practice. Microscope meaning a powerful lens, right? a magnifying lens. A lens of our practice that is to look up close. In the meditation just now I was speaking about it as an intimacy between awareness and experience, a close look, uh, an, an intimate look, a magnifying look at our experience. And just like when you take something and put it under a microscope, it can look rather different. At first glance it can look rather alarming. Right? That which seems ordinary spot of blood, just a red spot. But put it under a powerful microscope, there's a, oh my God, there's lots going on there. Right? Or have you seen like the uh, microscopic view of your bed sheets? <laughs> right? And then what it actually, bed sheet, very nice, just white, uh, cotton, but look at it up close and there's all kinds of little bugs moving around and all kinds of like layers of dead skin cells. Ugh. And sometimes this experience that I came in with, I felt more or less well adjusted when I arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and then I start to look up close at my experience. Oh God, I see the equivalent of bed bugs and dead skin cells. <laughs> Somebody was speaking earlier today about that magnifying effect. Right, in terms of what uh, she was calling the, the chatter. And sometimes people will come and say, oh God, since I've been on retreat, my mind has become really noisy. And yet actually what's happening is not that the, the chatter has, has increased, but the magnifying power of awareness means we're noticing it more, we're seeing it more up close. And like I say, sometimes that up-close view can be um, shocking, challenging. And yet it's also offering us a clearer vision, a truer vision, an important vision of the nature of our experience. On the one hand, we have this this kind of um, this microscope-like power, this magnifying lens of awareness, 
looking at our human experience as closely as we can, moment by moment by moment. Which is really what this is about, right? Certainly in terms of the methodology moment by moment. And then, on the other hand, then the question arises, well, what do we mean by human experience? seems like a, a vast field that seems like a lot to put under the microscope human experience and if we really if we just contemplate for a moment what do you what what does that mean to you your human experience what is it about uh, being alive which means seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, etc. Plus conceiving, imagining, feeling. Plus ruminating. Plus moving around and doing things. Plus constructing a certain narrative around what I have done and what I would like to do and where I think I'm going, etc. Any of the pieces that we might pull in what seems to you most essential about your human experience? What seems to you really worthy of looking at up close about your human experience? Thus far, We've given a lot of attention to body breathing. And one might say, well, out of the whole realm of human experience is what I'm most interested in looking at. Breathing. So I thought maybe I would explore a little um, what we mean by human experience. Using as that one of the models that the Buddha uses the model of Nama Rupa. Those of you who are familiar with the Buddhist tradition, sometimes Nama Rupa is spoken about as the five aggregates. And I'll speak about it this evening as, I don't so much like the word aggregates, as constructs. The five constructs of human experience. And you know, in some ways, these lists, and again, those of you who are familiar with the Buddhist tradition, you know that there's lots of lists, right? Five this is and three that, etc. In some ways, they're arbitrary. We could no doubt uh, deconstruct human experience or explore human experience uh, through three constructs, like body, heart, and mind, for example, or through 27 constructs. Right? In, in making fine divisions between different aspects of experience. But something, in, in having spent a lot of time kind of contemplating this and, and looking at it, under the, at it under the microscope of my own awareness, something I really appreciate is some sense of the Buddha not only making sense of his experience, but reflecting on how to speak about it. Right? And the, the genius, really, of finding ways to um, 
to deconstruct or to point to, to, to speak about human experience in ways that are universal enough that we can recognize them. So partly that reflection makes me feel grateful you know, that I've got the Buddha's model behind me, right? So we say, well, let's explore human experience. Oh, Buddha's model, Nama Rupa, five composites of experience. Well, let's look at it under that lens. And, um, that that certain appreciation for the fact that the Buddha was building his own model, which is something else. So, and if you're familiar with the Buddhist tradition, if you're familiar with the five aggregates, I'd la- ask you to put aside a little whatever you may already uh, know about them, etc., so that as much as possible we can look at experience afresh, which is what we're always asked to do. We want to put a living sample under our microscope, the aliveness of our human experience, rather than something dead that we've read about or imagined. So... Nama Rupa, this term Nama Rupa means name and form. Name and form. So there are these, these five constructs right, that are really the constructs of name and form. What that means is the constructs of human experience by which we make sense of what's happening. And these, we say, these are worth looking at up close, worth exploring. The first is... Uh, physical constructs. And maybe it's also worth saying at this point that sometimes this, these uh, constructs are translated as mind and body. Name and form. Right? Form, body. Rupa. Rupa uh, is the same word in Pali, or Sanskrit, for body. It's also the word for a statue. This is, this is a Buddha Rupa. And so that sense of of a form, but in the, I would say, clumsy or inaccurate translation as mind and body, it makes, it seems as if all the name and form that we're looking at is this one. I'm looking at mind and body, looking at mind and body. But actually, in the original sense, when the Buddha's talking about the constructs of experience, he's not separating out this form here from all of these forms just looking at the way we construct a sense of form, a sense of, in other words, physical reality. On the one hand, we might say, well, the physical reality that we get very concerned with, the physical reality we make much of, is this form, this this physical uh, appearance. And yet, it's also helpful to not make this so much a distinction so that we, we don't reinforce this kind of dichotomy of me over here, the self over here, and all the other forms, the world, over there. Because when we explore, when we put form under the microscope of our awareness, we find that those divisions aren't so sharp. We find that all form shares the same nature. 
So, in our practice, we take what we use, the construct of physical form, right? This form called my body, that we call my body. Or we're looking out and we see a lot of forms, which we call you and you and you and you. And then we go outside and we see the form of a tree, the form of a sky. And we say, well, let's look very closely. And when we look very closely, we tend to come into intimacy with this particular form, right? the sensations, the vibrations of physical life. That which we usually experience through the construct, my body. The way we tend to relate to body as a thing. A thing that's this shaped. Right? Defined by the, the skin boundary. And on the one hand, when we're not looking under the microscope of awareness, right? when we're looking with ordinary view, we say, well, of course that's what this body is. But we're interested in looking up close, looking intimately, looking through the lens of awareness. Hence, this emphasis on leaving experience alone, that we've been speaking about, letting things be as they are, and keeping on establishing and re-establishing an intimacy between awareness, the microscope, we might say, and between this, the, the up-close sensing into physical reality. And then what we find is not a thing. We find a, a lot of process. We find a, a fluid experience, which we call body. We find a constantly changing uh, movement of heat, temperature and density, tingling. We find processes that we can't fix, that won't stay steady. In other words, we find experience that can't be reduced to thingness. We find increasingly a sense of form that doesn't need to be reduced to being a thing. Body as process rather than body as thing. Form as appearance. Remarkable appearance. An endless display of appearances. Rather than what we see as being things. doesn't mean, of course, that we lose in any way the capacity to um, recognize the skin boundary, to recognize where <coughs> this form ends and another form begins. But as we look under the microscope, we start to dissolve our dependence on that way of seeing. Another way of, of, expl uh, of speaking about that may be the fruits of really exploring form as process, natural process, like we've been saying today. The fruits are that we're able to relax. 
exploring form as naturally fluid, naturally changing, naturally appearing. When body is a thing, in an un- sort of unexamined view, then it seems like a thing I need to um, be very concerned with, a thing I need to defend and protect, a thing I'm worried about, a thing I'm concerned with what's happening to it when I look in the mirror and see it generally wrinkling up, sagging and you know, decaying, basically. The usual view of form is, in other words, an anxious view of form. A fearful view of form. As that relaxation happens, again, it's not that we lose in any way the capacity to care for or protect uh, in a wise way, but what we lose, we lose the neurotic dependency, the idea that this is something that fundamentally I even could defend or protect. We find a graciousness, in other words, with the fact that this form is decaying. We find a way of living in form that doesn't expect it or need it to be a certain way. The anxiety about how this form should be, or how other forms should be, how this body should be, how other bodies should be. And looking through this lens, uh, awareness of body, the, the liberation that we start to see and feel is the liberation of relaxation. Sounds like a very ordinary thing, relaxation. And yet, when we look under the microscope of awareness in the way we've been doing today, at just body as it is, we start to have a sense of how shockingly unrelaxed we are. (laughs) People are always talking about relaxation. Like it's some easy thing. They say, what are you doing? I'm just relaxing. I'm always very impressed when somebody says they're able to relax. Because for me, learning to relax has been the journey of a lifetime. Decades of practice. It's a really, really, really sophisticated skill. Another word, if you like, for what we were calling last night the art of non-doing. It's also relaxation. And the kind of a blessing as the fruit of our practice. Relaxation isn't an on or off, right? Or tense or relaxed. It's a kind of infinitely deepening progression. There doesn't seem to be a limit to our capacity to relax into this life, to relax into this form, to relax around the way form is, to relax around the nature 
of form, the fluid nature, the changing nature, the ambiguous nature, the miraculous nature, the freely unfolding nature. That's why we pay attention to bodily life. To the sensations that we experience moment by moment. To the expansion and relaxation of breathing moment by moment. That's what it means to put to practice mindfulness of body. In other words, to let bodily life be really seen and met and explored under the microscope of awareness. So then, second construct, the construct of um, affective constructs. The construct of how we relate to experience. We like it, or we don't like it, or we're um, kind of indifferent. And, uh, the Vedana, again, those of you familiar with Buddhist language. All experience appears, right, is registered, registered in the form, registered by the senses, what I see, what I hear, what I smell, etc., what I imagine, what I remember, registers pleasantly or unpleasantly, or neither one nor the other, neutrally. In an unexamined way, we tend to take the construct of those affects as if they're real in some way. So we, somebody would say, oh, I saw that movie, it was crap. As if the movie exists in some inherent condition of crapness. Whereas what we really mean, and maybe it would be a little strange to say it this way, what we mean was... Um, the affect of the movie was unpleasant. <laughs> but we ascribe unpleasantness to the object as if it had some real, uh, some realness to it. I see a lot of you responding to the unpleasant affect of sitting here, <laughs> shuffling. <laughs> Certainly. I'm only on the second. You might want to put your unpleasant sensations under the microscope of awareness. But please feel free to move and be comfortable. And yet actually, when we look at those things in that way, um, I say to be comfortable, but you have to sit, I'm afraid. If you need to lean, you can lean. But Buddha's instructions were when teaching the Dharma, don't teach the Dharma to someone lying down unless they're dying. So we're all dying, right? (laughs) But unless you think it's immediate, (laughs) or there's some injury that you need to take care of, then, uh, yeah, please just sit. Unexamined experience we, we, is basically um, 
dealt with by reactivity. Examined experience, we put it under the microscope of awareness, increasingly gets managed by wisdom. That's why we're interested in looking up close. Every single moment of our experiential lives are being impacted pleasantly or unpleasantly or neutrally. If they're pleasant, there's a tendency towards that pleasantness. Right? A tendency to want it, often to contract around it, often to make a big drama around it. And the more intense the pleasantness, the more intense the reactivity around it. If the experience is unpleasant, same. Right? Tendency to react to it, and the pushing away and the resisting, in the fuss, in the fight or flight, etc. And if experience is neutral, then the same there's a tendency is basically to either not notice it or to get bored or restless. Right? And maybe the experience in meditation. Well, firstly, there's some uncomfortable experience, and there's the resistance, or the knees are hurting, or why do I sit here, and, and how long till the bell? Right? Resisting the unpleasant. And that having our experience under the microscope is an opportunity to study the affect, to study the difference between the unpleasantness itself, which is a completely natural facet of experience, and what we do with it, the tendency to contract, to tighten, to freak out. And then it may be that oh, we move, or we come back to another sitting, and the discomfort isn't there. And then experience is neutral. And then we drop off. Or we get agitated, or oh, nothing's happening. Oh. We tend to react with either indifference, dullness, or with agitation, restlessness in the face of the neutral. The fruits of really, really looking at those affects under the microscope of awareness are we start to feel, we kind of expand our comfort zone. We're able to abide, and you maybe had this experience in meditation. Right? As you separate out the difference between the unpleasant sensation itself, some heat or uh, pressure or density in your knees or your back or shoulders or something, as you separate that out from the reactivity to it, the fussing with it, the contracting around it, the generating a lot of anxiety about how long it is until the bell is going to ring, etc. Then we find that, oh, unpleasant sensation isn't that hard to bear. It's still unpleasant, that's why it's, it's nature. But unpleasantness isn't what's really hard to bear. Resistance, complaint, freaking out, imagining some other scenario where uh, everything would be different. That's what's really hard to bear. So as we, like, as we put down our reactivity, 
and the liberation from attending wisely to these three affects is the liberation of spaciousness, ease, equanimity, an increasing, deepening capacity to abide with experience as it is. That's why, in the same way as with body, that's why we attend in the way we do. That's why we intend attend in the way we have been during the day. We get to see body being body. We get to see pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutral displaying their nature. So, form, physical uh, appearances, and then the feeling we have towards them, affective appearances. And then the third construct, the construct of perceptions. The ways we perceive experience. The way we organize the forms that we see or hear or smell or conceive of. We have some sort of response, liking, if they're pleasant, or disliking, if they're unpleasant, for example. And then there's a perception. This is where experience gets quite complex. This is possibly where experience, the degree of complexity of our perceptions, possibly, possibly uniquely human in their sophistication. However much I study my dog, and his behavior slash reactivity slash emotional life. I'm not sure how complex his perceptions are. <laughs> but there's the perception that enables me to recognize Bilbo. Some of you know Bilbo if you've been to the Moulin. Mm -hmm. it's, the it's the perception, right, drawing on memory comparing with previous experiences, etc., that allow me to recognize Bilbo as Bilbo. So that much perception actually he has, because he recognizes me and Gail as us too as well. Anyway, we won't make this too much about dog <laughs> psychology. <laughs> but. When our perceptions are unexamined, they tend to be run by our reactivity. Just an example from recent cultural life. The perception of the word migrant. Right? That's a, it's a, that's a perception that's loaded with assumptions. It's a perception that's pl played out in, in, um, in the media, etc., etc., in all kinds of uh, different ways. It's a perception that's not, uh, well, it's a perception, right? It's not the truth. And yet, exp unexamined experience tends to reduce this great field of ambiguous experience to something seemingly known, seemingly familiar, seemingly certain. So, here there's people 
for example, fleeing civil war in Syria, people forced to leave their homes, people uh, under uh, threat of death, people losing their livelihood, losing family members, losing their, their home, crossing uh, borders at, uh, with very little food or money or ability to travel safely, etc., etc. There could be a lot of different perceptions applied to that. A perception of, you know, that description I just gave. Somebody who's lost everything and is fleeing for their life. Even whether we arrive at the perception of this person as refugee or as migrant. And maybe, hopefully, you're familiar in your own reading of uh, the stuff around uh, in the media and the stuff around uh, immigration, etc., to be discerning around those things. Our perceptions start to con condition the way we see forms as. Um, belonging or not belonging to us, the way we see forms as as other, the way we start to see forms as good or bad, right or wrong, what I want or what I don't want. And in those forms, like we're migrant or refugee, the way we can start to demonize a form through the perception of it. As we start to look at perception under the microscope of awareness, it's not that we lose our capacity to be discerning about conditions, discerning about people, about forms, discerning about what uh, might be helpful or unhelpful, what actions might, I might wish to take or not take. But we start to be able to hold a view of our perceptions that is more ambiguous. That can hold different perceptual viewpoints. The liberation of putting our perceptions under the microscope of awareness, of examining our perceptions, is the liberation of being able to abide non-judgmentally non-reactively, non-Pavlovianly. And again, we can see that we don't need to look to the political situation to see that here in the context of the retreat. Right? So, form is there, some sensations in the leg. Then the affect is there, oh, uncomfortable, don't like it. Then the perception starts to come in, perception of leg, right? rather than this, this ambiguous field of experience, the perception, that's my leg. Right? And then all the way the perception draws on the memory, you know, I, I like that leg, it's been with me a long time. <laughs> I'd quite like to hang on to it. And then the perception of time, some idea about uh, how long I'm going to have to sit here for. What did he say at the beginning? He said, now we'll sit for some time in meditation. And that's not helpful to me. How long, how long is it until the bell rings? Etc. Sometimes I remember that. 
And out of great compassion, I say, oh, 30 minutes. Right? So at least, you know, sometimes I remember it and I think, that's okay, we'll get there. <laughs> and sometimes I just don't remember. We're just going to sit and, well, let's see. So, examining our perceptions is an invitation into being able to hold our experience less reactively, more ambiguously, in a more nuancedly. And then we have the, the, the construct of um, well, mental and emotional constructs. Sankara in the Pali, if you're familiar. Mental and emotional constructs. Right? All the, the mental constructs in the form of analysis and commentary. Right? The story we tell ourselves about what's happening. The story that we make out of the migrant crisis, or the, hu the refugee crisis, or the humanitarian crisis, or the, uh, the, the political crisis, or whatever angle you might look at that perception we just pointed to of migrant, or refugee, or suffering human being. Or the, the meaning-making that we do out of that, whether it's a, a, you know, a story like that from the media, or the meaning-making that we do from our own experience. Form, sensations in the leg, feeling, don't like it, uncomfortable. Perception, my leg's hurting, how long is it going to take? Right? Perceptions of leg and time. And then the meaning-making that I start to do, the mental constructs I start to build around that. I'm sitting here, um, it's going to be ages. This meditation's a waste of time. I can't believe I signed up for this and it's only the first day, etc., etc. Or, of course, it could be the positively charged meaning making that we do. Right? Wow, I'm really managing to sit with this uncomfortable sensation. I'm such a great meditator, etc., etc. Or just the, oh, I'm, this is so great to do this practice. I'm so fortunate. Oh, what a blessing it is to be on retreat again etc. The conceptual constructs, the mental constructs that we make that describe our experience as if our experience is a property of the self. I'm having this experience. The mental constructs that locate our experience in time, in space, as if that's a true or incomplete description. So we're invited to look at this under the microscope of awareness, to look at the nature of time and space and self and world and experience. It's not, of course, that we lose the capacity to be discerning around time and space and self and world. But how might our experience look like? And actually, we can't imagine but we can start to taste it for ourselves. We can't imagine experience when we put down the conceptual apparatus. But we can start to taste that as we see, oh, that's conceptual construct, mental construct. It's just a view about, it's just an idea about, 
What happens if I pay attention to the experience closely, intimately, under the microscope of awareness, without relying on mental construct or on emotional construct? So if a mental construct, are the, the narrative, the story, the meaning-making that we do around what's happening, emotional constructs are the, the reactivity around it. Jealousy, or excitement, um, sadness, or hope, anxiety, or fantasy, etc., etc. The emotional constructs which pull us around in our inner drama, that make the inner, the story we tell ourselves the meaning-making we do around our experience that make it into a drama, the drama of my life, my relationships, my needs, my wishes, my fears, my problems, my neuroses, my patterns, my parents, my, my, my stuff. How might experience look to us? This human experience if we were to really look closely at our emotional reactivity rather than just playing it out. And the liberation of looking closely at our mental emotional reactivity is the liberation of actually finding completely different, unimaginable, different ways of making sense of our experience. Unless we've done that work, unless we've engaged that way of looking closely at experience, all we've got as a cognitive apparatus, right, most human beings, is mental and emotional constructs, mental and emotional reactivity. But that's not all human beings can do with this heart and mind. We're able to hold experience in a much more full way, in an unreactive way. In a, in a non-conceptual way or a post-conceptual way. We're able to understand an experience in a far more intuitive way. It's like, you know, just like the difference between seeing something flat in two dimensions or seeing it with depth in three dimensions. We, being able to see our experience rather than just through the lens of my, our meaning-making and our emotional reactivity. Starting to see experience in with more dimensionality. Starting to know the nature of experience. The self-arising nature, the happening-by-itself nature, the miraculous nature the extraordinary nature of human experience. Right? On the one hand, we just take it for granted. I say, oh, human experience. And we're like, oh, yeah, I got human experience. But, wow. I didn't choose this. I can't remember how this started. I can't imagine how this will end. And yet, here it is, playing out. Like, enter into the form, when I investigate the affects, 
when I start to study my perceptions, as I start to see through my mental and emotional reactivity, my sense of, my intimacy with, my understanding of this human experience starts to fill out and expand and free up in unimaginable ways. And then, so, are you wondering what the fifth <laughs> construct is? Form, feeling, perceptions, and mental and emotional constructs. What else is there to human experience? Consciousness. So self-evident that we're conscious, that we overlook it. So easily. Like, oh yeah, my mind, my, my um, thoughts, and body, and feelings. It's why we've been emphasizing so much, hey, awareness is here. Awareness is already here. You're already conscious. You've never had a single unconscious experience. And I know some of you will be arguing with that internally <laughs> when I say it. But you've, I stand by it. You've never had an unconscious experience. If you can tell me an experience you've had that was unconscious, well, how do you know you had it? What was there, knowing that there was the experience happening? Consciousness. Can't have an experience without consciousness. Can't have consciousness without an experience. Conscious of what? Consciousness is implicit in everything that's known, that's seen, that's experienced. And we're invited in a rather grand and exciting vision of human possibility, we're invited to put consciousness under the microscope of our awareness, to explore, and that requires a certain sensitivity. It requires us to be grounded in this form. It requires us to be a little spacious around our reactivity. It requires us to be able to see through our perceptions. It requires us to be spacious around our mental and emotional storytelling and reactivity. to be able to um, explore the fact, the, the phenomenology, the appearance, the here-ness, the is-ness, we might say, of being conscious. Consciousness is here. And yet, it's kind of hard. It's hard to say what that means, even. Consciousness is here. It's hard to think about what that means. It's hard to feel what that means. And yet, that's where our practice invites us. Awareness of the basic, immediate, 
verifiable and experienced truth that you're conscious. Your life is switched on. And there's not much you can do about it. Try to switch it off. Please, try to go unconscious for a moment. In fact, the more I invite you to go unconscious, the more you may find <laughs> the volume of consciousness gets turned up. Now try to go really unconscious. <laughs> I often reflect on that in terms of meditation instructions, right? Encouraging to be aware, to be aware. You say, well, okay, now don't be aware. And in, in trying not to be aware, we maybe start to see more clearly how awareness is here. And yet, awareness is... is unfind, uh, consciousness at the same time is kind of unfindable, unpointable, ungraspable. Consciousness takes on the form of whatever is being known. We tend to, if we've unexamined, we have an unexamined relationship with consciousness, we tend to just call it me. I'm having this experience. I'm going, I'm doing, I'm thinking, I'm feeling. And yet when we start to really put that under the microscope, we start to ask, well, what does that mean? What is it that's thinking and feeling and doing? I'm going. It's a very profound, we might say, important, useful question. What is it that's thinking and feeling? And yet, nobody ever has managed to give a satisfactory answer. So I'm letting all of you off the hook with that. Nobody ever, Buddha didn't have a satisfactory answer. Nobody has a satisfactory answer. That's something I find rather exciting about putting consciousness under the microscope. It's a kind of clumsy way of describing it. Noticing the fact of, and yet simultaneously, the mystery of being conscious. We can't find something that we can point to and say, that's consciousness. Of course we can't, because what would be doing the pointing towards it? Consciousness. So language starts to run out on us a little here. Everyday mind starts to, the cogs of everyday mind start to jam. But in a way that's the point. Invited to look at the basic mysterious hereness of being conscious in such a way that in looking at it up close we start to actually discover a different kind of relationship to being here. A relationship that can't be confined or defined but that in the knowing that relationship, in the seeing that relationship something gets freed up. Something about the nature of being here. Something about a capacity to be in what's happening without needing it to be defined or confined. A capacity to be 
here without being able to say what the hell it means to be here. Without being able to say what this is that's speaking, feeling, knowing, perceiving. And yet, to meet that in such a way that opened things up, in such a way that our capacity to be here, to understand being here, to respond to being here, to be sensitive to what is here, who is here, how things are here, to hold experience in a way that's increasingly more nuanced, more luminous, more loving. This is what can happen in the laboratory of our practice. This ordinary, easily taken for granted thing called human experience turns out to have an infinite amount to reveal to one who really wishes to see, to one who's prepared to look closely and carefully and caringly, moment by moment, at what we call body, feelings, perceptions, mind, heart, consciousness. One who's willing to look at human experience, And I can think of no better way of looking at human experience, no better environment for looking at human experience, no better moment, certainly, for looking at experience than right here, right now. So may we make the most of this extraordinary situation that we have. And of course, in some ways, this, this extraordinary situation of being on retreat, etc. But more, really, this extraordinary situation we have called being in the midst of human experience. The very place where we always find ourselves. these reflections can be of support to you as you follow the thread of your practice. <coughs> we'll take um, 20 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.